This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites. And up next is a listener's story from Iowa, Jack Ehrenman's story. He's a general contractor in Iowa. In 2013, he took over the program Sportability of Iowa. Sportability provides sports and recreation programs for those in the community with physical disabilities so they can enjoy an active lifestyle. Here's Jack starting off with his own personal story. My wife and I have been married for 40, it will be 48 years coming up this May 4th. And we had our uh, one boy uh, about a year and a half later. Two of our sons have pretty significant physical or mental challenges. Uh, one of my boys is a, uh, uh, he's, he was born about 40, about 43 years ago. And he has pretty significant mental challenge, hypotonic, which is low muscle tone, autism. He's just, uh, he's got the cognitive level of probably around a one and a half to two year old. And uh, so Ryan's the one with the mental challenge. My youngest son was born about 35 years ago with spina bifida, disability that, that has to do from well, it's actually formed when you're about one month uh, after conceiving. Before you actually even know that you're pregnant, this disability has a has a, already been formed, and it progresses, you know, through the birth. And uh, so when Sean was born, we noticed right away that he had something wrong with his back. And there's varying degrees of spina bifida, but his happened to be a seal that was just it's kind of like a cellophane over a hole about the size of a half dollar. As a result of it, that day, we had to take him out of the out of the delivery room and transport him. We didn't, but the hospital did. Transport him down to Iowa City about an hour and a half away to a hospital where a neurosurgeon would uh, close up that seal. And then there was some other issues that they had to deal with uh, along that line shortly after. My wife and I as soon as we noticed that there was something going on and that they were gonna to have to transport him out of the hospital, we immediately called our family members that were in town. We called the local priest and we had him baptized within a few hours right after birth so that they could move him to the hospital in Iowa City. And the next day, my wife had to go down there and stay with him for a month. So this was like one day she gives birth the next day, she's going to Iowa City to take care of her son. And I, and I being a father, I mean, I've never given birth, but um, I can't imagine being a mom and having to do that. Um, she, she really showed her true strength at that time. The thing I remember about the day we had our child, another couple from the town we were living in had a I had a baby girl she was born with down syndrome they had no idea what it was they they had a few kids that were older and so this was their first child that that had some kind of a mental challenge and they didn't know what down syndrome was well because we had been dealing with our son Ryan for about seven or eight years 
we already had that connection and we were able to minister to them in the hospital the, the first day that they had found this out. And this was before my wife had to go down to uh, be with her son. So right from the get-go on Sean's birth, we were already ministering to other people about to, to kind of help them through what they were facing. And we had no idea what spina bifida was at that time. We were, we were in their place, but just a little bit different situation. We took the time and we knew that in helping deal with their problem, it was, it was ministering to us also. So it's, it's something that uh, has always been a part of my wife and my life is looking at how we can help other people through our, our probably being our experiences in our lives and uh, just, just taking the time to reach out to help them through some of their tough times. The boys that we had that, quote, could do sports and all the normal things that most kids do at young ages, uh, we also had two kids that really took almost 24-7 care. I mean, obviously th that put a, a lot of stress on our situation because we had the boys and so we had to figure out, okay, being that we have two that really are taking almost all of our time, what's gonna happen with the other kids? What would they be doing if we didn't have the children that had the special needs? And we had to figure out a way to have their lives be as normal as they could be in, under those circumstances. So I, I tell you, we figured it out that in order to get this done, we had to split forces. We were not going to be able to both go to all of the games or all of the practices or whatever, all the Cub Scout things or whatever it was that they needed and still deal with the other kids who needed care. So we would split up and sometimes it'd be my wife would go with them and other times I would go with them. And was it tough? It was very tough. It was, but it was life. It was like we we're going to New York. We had all these plans to go to New York and then all of a sudden we're going to Chicago. You know, our, our direction was different than what we thought we were going. So it was basically that way in life. We're, we're headed down this road with, we thought we were gonna have this perfect family and, and raise our kids. I'm kind of a nuts and bolts type of guy, <clears throat> I think. I think that's because I'm a carpenter. I see a plan, so I've gotta figure out ways to make things work. But it's, it's the same thing in life. I see a need, I see somebody hurting, I see somebody who could use something to help them do something that they can't, they're not capable of right now, and try to figure out ways to, to make it happen. And that's really, I mean, that's how sportability happened. I'm, I'm involved pretty heavily with sportability of Iowa. And actually I was involved in adapted sports before that. I think probably the catalyst for that was my son Sean, who was again the youngest, at a young age, he wanted to play 
competitive and recreational sports. He did not want to do Special Olympics because he did not have a, a mental challenge like my older, my older son did, who did Special Olympics. But my youngest son didn't want to do Special Olympics. He wanted, he, he just wanted that competitive, he had a competitive edge. In Iowa, they had a wheelchair track events. So Sean was able to be on his high school team as a track athlete, but doing wheelchair track events. So I approached the track coach. I said, my son would really like to do track. He's got a track chair, and can he be on your team? And the coach says, well, I, I haven't a clue about how to run wheelchair track. I don't, I've seen it, but I don't know anything about it. So he said, if you would be an assistant coach, he can be on the team. Because Sean was involved in sports, I bought him a hand cycle which is a bike that you run with your arms instead of your feet. You sit on it. There, there was a racing hand cycle that, we, that I bought him. And you sit really low like a recumbent bike and your feet are out in front of you and you're pedaling with your arms. And got it all put together. And Sean happened to be at a camp, away at a camp during this process. So I thought, well, I'm just gonna go on, the, take a little five block ride on this thing, make sure it's working right. And I went about five blocks one way and came back the other, and my arms and my chest were starting to burn a little bit. And I thought, man, that's a great exercise. Uh, so I started riding the thing about five days a week. And I mean, I would ride for, you know, an hour or two. And the more I rode, the more I enjoyed it. But then I thought, well, you know, I should probably start riding a bike because then I could develop my upper body with my lower body. So I started riding a bike and I would alternate. I'd ride one day on the hand cycle, one day on the bike. Well, um, I've, I've ridden marathon. I started riding marathons and 5Ks and just for the, the competitive juices and started doing that. And um, then I got into a group, the, one of the groups with our basketball team, they were gonna ride Ragbri or just a couple days of Ragbri and so I, I went along with them. And Ragbri is a state where they ride the bicyclists, probably about 20,000 of them, go from one, one side of the state of Iowa to the other. It takes about eight days and it's about 500 miles, four to 500 miles. And so we would ride a day or two on the hand cycle. In training for it, I was riding my bike. I happened to go out with a group of people and I happened to be on a ride one day that started with four or five of us couple of the guys were pretty fast riders. One of the gals that was there, uh, she was a little bit older than me. She, was, she wasn't as fast as they were. So I'm thinking, okay, I can ride with those guys, but then she's gonna be back here by herself. I'll just hang back with her and we'll, we'll ride this route together today. So I introduced myself and we talked and we talked all the way through the ride. And she was asking me about different things. And, and the subject came up about my desire to have a sports camp um, and that was actually before sportability was involved but uh, I wanted to try to get a sports camp put together so that uh, other kids like Sean could come to it and not only learn about just track but basketball we, we started about nine different sports tennis hand cycling uh, rock climbing softball um, just you know a lot of different sports so um, she said, you know, at the end of the ride, she said, uh, 
well, let's let's think about it. Well, maybe we'll keep in touch. A couple months later, I'm riding Ragbri, and I pulled off. A, this is like a 70 or 80 mile ride, 20,000 people, and we I pulled off in a little town about halfway through the ride to get to eat lunch. Got my lunch. I was sitting on a curb, and this gal who I'd ridden with comes riding through right in front of me and she says, Jack. And I look up and I see her and I say, well, how you doing? And so she said, I've been thinking about that camp. She said, I think we're gonna, we'll get together after Ragbri. Let's see if we can start it. We got together. Our first camp was probably about six, six athletes and probably about a half a dozen or a dozen volunteers. And it was three days at, four days at the University of Northern Iowa. We just had a great time. And the camp has expanded to where now we have anywhere from 100 to 150 people come from all over the U.S., uh, athletes, volunteers, coaches, to this camp for three or four days. And um, it it grew. But after a couple of years, I thought, you know, these kids need more than just the weekend. So I started doing every other week clinics at the Y for three hours on a Saturday. Uh, so we'd have... A lot of these same kids would come up to the clinic, and um, and come through that for three hours. Well, there was one young, young one young man that um, came up. He was probably about a sixth grader. He came to the to the clinic, and I could just see in his face he was just. I mean, he couldn't stop smiling. <laughs> he was really excited to be there. He came the first month with his family, and two months later he came up with uh, an aide. And I didn't think much about it because there's a lot of times parents can't make it to things, so they send them with somebody who, who can. I didn't know this for a few years until he was interviewed by a friend of mine who was doing an interview on, on kids that were, why, why are you interested in this? What are you doing? Why is this important to you? And uh, he said to this guy, he said, I came to the clinic because I really wanted to be there and my parents went to Florida on a week vacation. So, uh, he he came to a three a three hour clinic while his parents were having fun at Disneyland. And I mean that's just spoke spoke wonders to me. And he said it was the first time he realized he could actually. <laughs> and like I said, I wear my heart on my sleeve. He said it was the first time he could actually live away from his parents. He realized he, he could do more with his life. He became a track champion. He became, he, he went to school after high school. He's got a job and he still gives back to the camp. He's one of the, one of the kids who, you know, he comes back and he has a blast teaching other kids how to do what he's doing. He's just one example and of all the kids that I've had come through since 2006 or seven. You couldn't pay me, you couldn't pay me enough money not to do this. 
you, you couldn't uh, there's there's not a price that I can put on changing somebody's life and giving them hope independence self-worth determination anything that you would want for anybody anything you would want for any of your kids they're getting and they're getting it as a result of seeing that they can actually do something besides sit and let people take care of them. Sportability grew out of that atmosphere. About 2010, two professors at the University of Iowa approached me about starting a sports program. I kind of mentored them and got them kind of setting the, the thing in place and they started Sportability of Iowa. They actually started the program, and that's what they named it. And that was in 2010. Well, 2013 came along, and they were wanting to uh, move to teach in Illinois. And so I said, well, what, what's going to happen with your equipment and, and your programs? And they said, well, it may just have to end, and we probably would give our equipment to Mike, who's doing sports over another part of the state. I said, well, you know, really, your athletes are right here, your equipment's right here, uh, I'm right here. I said, why don't I see if I can get some of the athletes to help out and we'll just take it over and keep it running so that everything will continue. And so that's what we agreed on and that's what we did. One of the things that I've come to notice and I guess is a, is a real probably big part of sportability and why we do what we do is there are a lot of the kids who come to us come with so many barriers already set up in their lives in order to do three sports if you went to racing biking and basketball you would have a different sports chair for each one of those at a cost of anywhere from $3,500 to $5,000 for a a decent chair. You go beyond that for an elite chair, you're going to spend seven to ten. But for those athletes to play three sports, three different chairs, you're over ten thousand dollars. Well, that's a barrier. And then let's say they want to get together and play basketball. Okay, they go out and get a basketball chair. And so now they've spent three thousand, four thousand dollars on a chair. Okay, but you can't play basketball with one person. So you need a team. Well, if you have a team of five, well, there's five chairs. And you have, in the state of Iowa, we're spread out a lot. You, sometimes you can't five, find, find five athletes within the driving distance that's needed to practice. So let's say you do that. Well, now you have to find another five athletes somewhere else to play against. So there's 10 athletes with 10 chairs. So now you're up over thirty to $50,000 to play a game. To play a game and that's one sport it was around Christmas time um, we we had a sports program going that was at the YMCA or one of the churches I forget which one down in uh, Cedar Rapids and um, at the time we had our trailer parked with our wheelchairs sports wheelchairs in it uh, in the parking lot because that's what they would use when they go play basketball and it was like 13 or 14 chairs. And those chairs, brand new, were probably about four to $5,000 each. 
and uh, somebody happened to steal the trailer. Um, and we thought, wow, this is, and this is like, uh, with our, without equipment, we didn't know how are we going to, how are we going to do this? Because we relied on those chairs and we didn't have money to go out and even buy one of them. Um, so I sat everybody down, we had a meeting and I said, look, this is where we're at. This is what's, you know, we, we've got no chairs. We've got about four months. We need to go out and get the word out. We need to really hit the streets and fundraise so we can get chairs. And, um, and I thought at the time, you know, this is a real hardship because we depended on those chairs for a lot of things. And those chairs meant everything to those kids that were using them. And I also told him, I said, you can look at this in two ways. You can, you can just cry about it and you can go home and you can sit and cry about what if and why did this happen? And I said, but you have another choice. And that is, we're going to get our heads together. We're going to go out. We're going to do whatever we need to do to raise money so we can buy wheelchairs. And I thought to myself at the time, you know, I would not wish this on anybody. I would not wish somebody in our position to have this happen to them. But I couldn't figure out anybody else <laughs> that I could see who could handle it better. Because they've already had so many obstacles in their lives. They get up every day and face. This was another obstacle. But they didn't, they didn't let it defeat them. They went out and between all of us, we got the papers involved, we got TV involved, we got radio involved. People were coming out of the woodwork to help us. And we raised $40,000 in four months. And a lot of it was given to us because people wanted to help. And we let them help. And that's, that's what I've always felt is if you see a need, you're not going to save the world. You're not going to completely wipe out whatever tragedies there are, whatever they are. But for that one person, just helping them get through that moment and maybe giving them some hope, it, it, it's life-changing. And I've seen it in numerous families and numerous kids and numerous adults and giving them not only hope, but some direction that gives them the strength and the knowledge that they can do more than what's right in front of them. There, there can be improvement, there can be hope, there can be life that can be changed. I've always felt that helping others uh, gives you so many more blessings than what what you're giving them and um, and, and it's just a, 
it's just a great reason to do it. And I think once you get in that mindset, it's hard to get out of it because it's so good. <laughs> um, it's it's you can't put a monetary value on the blessings you get from it. It's just impossible. And you've been listening to Jack Ehrenman, his story, his son's story. By the way, Jack recorded this while in the hospital with his son, Sean, who was very sick. Unfortunately, Sean died just a few days later after this interview. Sean was how he got into all of these programs and helped all of these kids in the first place. So if you want to help, sportabilityofiowa.org. In Sean's memory, Jack Ehrenman's story. We'd love to hear stories like this from you in your neighborhood. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. Again, Jack Ehrenman's story here on Our American Stories. we continue here on Our American Stories. Dawn Raffle was a fiction editor for many years. She helped launch O, the Oprah magazine, where she served as executive articles editor for seven years. She subsequently held a senior level at large position at Reader's Digest. Raffle's most recent book, The Strange Case of Dr. Cooney, How a Mysterious European Showman Saved Thousands of American Babies, was awarded a 2019 Christopher Award for books that affirm the highest values of the human spirit. Let's take a listen to this wonderfully unique American story. Hello, my name is Dawn Raffle. I'm the author of the book, The Strange Case of Dr. Cooney, How a Mysterious European Showman Saved Thousands of American Babies. I spent about four years going down a rabbit hole of research to find out what was the deal with one of the strangest stories in American medical history. So early in the 20th century, um, if you were to go to Coney Island, um, the People's Playground, also known affectionately as Sodom by the Sea for its hijinks, Or if you were to go to Atlantic City, which at the time was America's honeymoon capital. Or if you were to go to, say, a theme park in Chicago or Minneapolis, you would pass an exhibit that would say infant incubators with real living babies. And there would be a barker outside and you could pay a quarter to go see living premature babies being cared for in incubators. So when I first stumbled across this, I thought, how is this even possible? Is this the most crazy exploitation of human life? Is this a commodification of babies? Well, it turned out to be even stranger than that. There was almost no care for premature babies available in American hospitals at that time. So if somebody had a baby and a tiny one, two or three pounds, their best hope was to take the baby home and maybe um, wrap it in blankets, keep it warm next to the oven or the fire, and hope for the best. And often the best was not very good. Along came 
this man, Dr. Martin Arthur Cooney, who was behind all of these sideshows. Who was he? He claimed that he was a European doctor, that he had trained in Leipzig and Berlin. That, that would have been some of the best medical training in the world at that time. And then he was the protege of a great French doctor who was conveniently dead at the time that Martin Cooney was making these claims. And that he then came to the United States for the very first time in 1898 for the Omaha World's Fair to show this new technology, the infant incubator. Now, his story becomes very odd because apparently, according to him, he was just seized with the desire to relocate across an ocean. Seriously, why? Once you've seen Omaha, you can never return to Paris? I think I will give up my really prestigious institutional affiliation with one of the world's great doctors in France so that I can practice medicine on Coney Island next to the shoot the shoots and the alligator boy. Okay, it's not too much of a spoiler to say Martin Cooney really wasn't a real doctor. However, he knew how to save preemies and he was willing to do it when the medical establishment really couldn't and wouldn't do it. So here's this guy who actually did pick up a European protocol. He hired fantastic nurses. And let me tell you, in a neonatal ICU, the nurses are always the secret sauce. That has a lot to do with whether or not the babies survive. He had these great machines, the new incubators. He also offered the most meticulous care, very low nurse-to-patient ratio, insistent on feeding these babies breast milk only. If the mother couldn't provide it, he hired wet nurses. The premises were immaculate. He was a big believer in really loving these fish, love them, hug them, show them real human care. This was very much at odds with anything that was available in the hospitals for a long time. At the time, the hospitals really didn't have the resources to have enough equipment. They didn't have enough nurses. They didn't have enough space. Hospitals were sometimes not all that clean. They couldn't afford to hire wet nurses. They would feed the baby's formula that was not as successful. So here is this Dr. Cooney, fake doctor, saving children over the years by the thousands, desperately trying to persuade the medical establishment. And yes, admittedly, because this guy was charging admission to the public, he was becoming very wealthy himself. I don't really think he saw a conflict between doing good and his own personal self-interest. There were people who faulted him for that. But he continued, and you would think the medical establishment would catch on and say, hey, you know, here's this guy. He's getting real results. He's saving 85% of these children who should be considered pretty much doomed. However, there were a few things going on, one of which, unfortunately, was the American eugenics movement, which was really about taking the new science of genetics and using it to try to manipulate the human gene stock. It ended up in absolutely horrific abuses, including the involuntary sterilization of 
tens of thousands of Americans. And the decision to sometimes deliberately withhold care from infants who had severe disabilities. Um, and it didn't directly target premature babies, but it did cast a shadow over their prospects. There was really a sense of, you know, why do we need to care for these weaklings, these feeble babies? We have more than enough hungry mouths to feed. The mother will have another child and so on. So the resources were just lacking. Over time, Martin Cooney had one great friend in Chicago, Dr. Julius Hess. And Julius Hess was really everything Martin Cooney wasn't. He was a real doctor. He did have real credentials. He was very highly respected. And he began listening to Dr. Cooney, learning from him, taking his practices into the hospital setting, and desperately, desperately struggling for funding, struggling to get people to listen to him. He published the first book on taking care of preemies in this country in 1922, in which he dedicated his book to Dr. Cooney. But something that really turned the tide was in 1933, at the bottom of the Depression, there was a World's Fair in Chicago. It's not the famous World's Fair that most people think of with the Ferris wheel and that's featured in the book Devil in the White city. This was a Depression-era World's Fair, and Dr. Cooney and Dr. Hess joined forces to have a big incubator show. It was right out on the Midway with the sideshows and other Midway attractions. Meanwhile, in the Hall of Science, you had a eugenics exhibit, but the actual work of saving lives was happening on the Midway, and there was so much publicity for this particular show that it did begin to turn the tide. Chicago became the first city with a really unified public health policy in order to take care of preemies it would eventually become the model for the rest of the country. So if we really want to look at it, there are many people beginning to believe that, yes, you know, this phony doctor with the sideshow is actually the rightful father of American neonatology. He saved thousands and thousands of people. Some of them are still alive. I've talked to a bunch of them. I will tell you, not a one of them feels annoyed that they were displayed in a sideshow. Not a one of them feels like they were exploited in any way. And not a one of them is irritated that he wasn't a real doctor. They feel only gratitude that this man saved their life. And they went on to have wonderful lives and have children and have grandchildren. Without Martin Cooney, they probably would not be here. So we sometimes owe a debt to people who work really far outside the lines. And Martin Cooney is one of them. Another really interesting thing about Dr. Cooney is that when hospitals began introducing incubators, and it, it really became very widespread after World War II when American healthcare in general just got better and better, that first generation of preemies treated in hospitals with incubators, a great many of them very sadly went blind, and they couldn't understand what was going on. And Martin Cooney, by that point, was already retired, but they did go to ask him, why is it that none of the babies you treated lost their eyesight? 
And frankly, he really didn't know. Um, Well, he wasn't a doctor and nobody knew why this was going on. The truth was the hospitals were pumping too much oxygen into the machines. That was causing the blindness. And Martin Cooney, although he pumped oxygen into the machines, it was never as much. And hey, he was a showman. So he would actually take the babies out of the machines and show them off. And because of that, because of that, their eyesight was preserved. So again, just a little piece of lost medical history, and I hope you enjoy this story. Thank you. And that was Dawn Raffle, and thanks, Dawn, for that really interesting story. And so much work is done outside the boundaries of whatever the establishment thinks in almost any field. And lives were saved. It was interesting that she got to talk to and meet some of these preemies who became, well, parents themselves, and not one of them was upset we felt exploited and not one of them cared that he wasn't a real doctor as well he saved their lives the strange story of dr cooney here on our american stories And this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And today we bring you a story brought to us by the Coalition for Better Health at Lower Cost. It's the story of Herb and Lorraine Pergozin, and here's Herb. I was born in Hartford, Connecticut. We had a totally different way of living as kids. Nowadays, mothers go with kids to school. Um, They're afraid to let them go themselves. They They stay home, invite friends over. They're very careful. When I was a kid, um, I used to go out by myself. I had all the freedom I wanted. I'd take my bike and I'd go to this park, which was miles away. Um, and I, I never told my mother where, where I was going, which wasn't really good, but uh, she was busy. There was a little bit of neglect there. And we weren't, uh, we didn't have much money. I went to Hebrew school. Um, I had a bar mitzvah. Um, it was a, a religious household. When I left, I, I really dropped that. I really wasn't religious anymore. Um, my wife, uh, after I got married, my wife was kosher because my mother would vi- and father would visit and it was important that they came to a kosher home or they wouldn't eat in our house. Then I went to college. I got into a school called Hillier College in Hartford and uh, Hillier College became the University of Hartford. I grew up in Hartford, Connecticut, where I spent the first 18 years of my life and never moved back after that. 
I was born in 1942, I'm 77 years old. That was during the war and we lived in an apartment house until I was three as renters. And then when I was three, my parents bought this three family house on Kent Street in Hartford, uh, in the north end of Hartford. I graduated with honors from my high school class and I went to Syracuse. And um, I met my husband when I was 17, still in high school. I had a boyfriend when I was 16, and we broke up and I was heartbroken. My first boyfriend ever. And so that first love always, you know, is painful when it breaks up, and it usually does. Anyway, so I go to, I look for a job, and uh, it was at the beach. And I, I saw a job advertised in the newspaper that they were looking for a babysitter. I applied for the job, and she, the lady interviewed me and gave me the job to be the babysitter for her two boys, and she was expecting a third, and she needed help. And she uh, lived at the beach in the summer, managing a cottage that rented rooms to vacationers. So she needed a helper with the kids. I was it. Turns out that that lady was my husband's sister. And he came to the beach to visit his sister and met the babysitter. Well, what happened was my future sister-in-law ended up being the babysitter with her husband when he came on weekends while Herbie and I went out. <laughs> they stayed home and babysat. And so, um, I don't know how well that went over, but that's what happened. Anyway, the relationship continued for about four months, and Herbie also got me a job. I'm the only one allowed to call him Herbie. It's a family. His family calls him Herbie. Strangers, it's Herb. But it turns out all my friends call him Herbie, too, because they hear me calling him Herbie, and they think that's his name. So he gets called Herbie whether he likes it or not. Anyway, we dated for about four months, but we were both rebounding off of previous relationships, and we weren't in the right place, and we were awfully young. He was 21, I was only 17, I was a senior in high school. But he got me a job, a winter job, as a cashier in a supermarket, because he was the assistant cash department head, and he had some pull and got me that job. So he was my boss. Well, that was great until we broke up and stopped dating because Herbie said, I don't want to get serious with anybody and so I don't think we better go out anymore. And so that was the end of that. It was kind of difficult when he'd come to work all dressed up in a you know, sport jacket and nice slacks. I knew he was going out with somebody. And I didn't notice, I mean, I don't think he ever noticed when someone would come to pick me up and take me out after work at nine o'clock. I'd finished work and sometimes I went out afterwards. I don't think he was even aware of it. But I was aware of him. I forgot about him kind of though because I did go off to college after that, after my senior year. Two years, Later, fast forward, I'm now a sophomore in college, and I come home for a vacation, and I 
I'm dragged to this club meeting that my girlfriend belonged to. She belonged to this club at the Jewish Center called Atid. And um, Herbie was a member of that club and goes to that same meeting. And when we come back, we'll find out what happened after they went to that same meeting. We'll find out what happened to Herb, or maybe I should call him Herbie, and Lorraine Pergozin. And it's a love story, and it's so much more, folks. But it's great hearing from people in their 70s tell their life story, and we do that here on this show because, well, we tell everyone's story. It's so true what Herb was saying about growing up at a different time where you could get on a bicycle and just go a couple of miles to a park and your parents all, I was lamenting about this with some friends the other night, your parents would say, we'll see you when the sun comes down. And that would be a Saturday. You'd go out at like eight or nine in the morning and they let you run free with open range for a dozen hours. And I don't think that's uh, available to many kids today. And it's a, it's a sad thing. When we come back, more of Herb and Lorraine Pergozin's story, our Better Health at Lower Cost series, as always brought to us by the great folks at the Stetson Family Office here on Our American Stories. back with the story of Herb and Lorraine Pergozin here on Our American Stories. They had dated once before, broke up because they were just too young. And after losing touch a couple of years later, they meet again when Lorraine was dragged to a club meeting at the local Jewish center. Here's Lorraine. And he sees me there. And now I look a little different. I'm a college sophomore and I'm more sophisticated. And he says, is that you, Lorraine? And I said, yes, and you remember my name. He has a terrible time remembering names, always has. But he remembered mine, and so I said, you remember my name? And he says, I wouldn't forget your name. Anyway, we reconnected, and he asked if he could take me home that night from that meeting, and I decided to play it cool, and I said, no, I came with my girlfriend. I better go home with her. She'll take me home. And he said, well, could I have your address? And I said, okay, if you want it. He says, yeah, I'll write to you. We'll stay in touch. So I gave him my address and never heard from him. A few months later, I come back. I'm walking past this kosher supermarket. It wasn't even in my neighborhood. Don't ask me what I was even doing there. Out comes Herbie's mother and she knows me. She spent part of the summer with me when I was the babysitter and she knew me well. And she said, hi, Lorraine. She said, does Herbie know you're in town? And I said, I don't think so. And then she said, oh, okay. And then she has a conversation with me and then she runs home and tells him. So I come home and the next day I'm ready to leave for school again, I've got my suitcase in my hand and the phone rings. 
And I think, should I answer it or should I go outside and wait for my ride that's going to come pick me up and take me to school? Well, I, I answered it. It was him. And he said, why didn't you tell me you were going to be in town? And I said, why didn't you write? Anyway, there was nearly a letter there. By the time I got to school, he wrote so fast. I got a letter right away. And I invited him for um, a special weekend that they were having at Syracuse. And he came. That was it. We fell in love once and for all. And now I was 19 and he was 23. And we never dated anyone else again. Two years after that, we were married. He graduated from college the day before our wedding. The same, that was a very busy weekend. He graduated on a Saturday. We got married on a Sunday. We were married June 9th. He graduated June 8th. And we went on our honeymoon, and that was it. We never, ever returned to Connecticut except to visit. I graduated. I went to work for GE because um, uh, we got married. She was still going to Syracuse University. Uh, so <clears throat> I went to work. I, I applied to the only two companies that would hire somebody who was a math major. There was General Electric and Carrier Air Conditioning. So uh, General Electric gave me a job. I went to work for them. And uh, they said, well, uh, we have a job as a programmer, computer programmer. And I said, what is a computer and what is a programmer? I needed the job, so I took it regardless. So then I, I learned how to program on the job. And the first thing we worked on was an air weapons control system. Uh, it was always a military type system. Um, the way that worked is uh, you, um, you, you, got, you use radar to track an aircraft and the information about that aircraft would be sent to a computer and the computer would determine is it friendly or is it uh, uh, you know, somebody at some aircraft you had to shoot down, and our enemy aircraft. We would make that determination, and uh, we would send messages to shoot it down if we had to. I was uh, transferred to Florida that worked at Cape Kennedy, and I wrote a program to interface with the command and service module and the lunar excursion module on the uh, Saturn rocket, which is the one that went to the moon. Uh, and then Kennedy died. I was at work when it happened. Everybody knows where they were when it happened. Um, so Kennedy died and Johnson took over as president and um, he moved the, the Manned Spacecraft Center to Houston, Texas, because he was a Texan. <laughs> so. Uh, Cape Kennedy, of course, still was there, and they launched the, the missiles from there. However, the Manned Spacecraft Center, where they controlled the whole thing, was in Houston. Herbie was working on the Apollo project, and he was a bona fide programmer then, doing some very important things. We lived there a year, 
but we didn't like Texas. Herbie decided to interview and on another job. He'd been with GE for three years now to see wh what he would be worth on the open market as a programmer. And there was an ad in the paper and we were on our way to go swimming at a friend's house. And they invited us for dinner and to go to the pool. And I had on my maternity bathing suit because now I was pregnant with our second child. And um, my little son was in his swim trunks. And my husband wore a suit to do this interview, left me in the car downstairs. So he goes up to do the interview and comes back down and says, they want to talk to you. I said, me? <laughs> Look at me. Anyway, up I went and they wined and dined me. Oh my, did they knock themselves out to try to get me to get him to accept this job. It was in California. And uh, he had been to California for uh, jobs for GE that were debugging jobs, emergency kind of jobs, and he'd come here and work through the night, sometimes debugging programs and stuff like that. He saw the mountains and the climate and he loved it. Anyway, I was sold by that, but I was especially sold by the 27% raise in salary they offered him and the depressed area they were sending us to, which meant everything was cheap. And boy, that's what we needed, cheap. <laughs> cheap but high raise in money. We took, he took the job and off we went to California. And we lived in Lompoc near Vandenberg Air Force Base where we stayed for only a year because it was Federal Electric Corporation that hired him. They became part of ITT. ITT is a very uh, reputable, good business, good company. Federal Electric was flying by its shoestrings. And there was one week where they said, sorry, we can't pay you this week. Your pay will come next week. You can't do that to somebody. So Herbie says, I gotta get out of here. So I said, we talked it over and we, he decided, I have to give them their year. I'll stand the year. Otherwise, we have to pay back all our moving expenses. And they moved us white glove, and I can't afford that. We're going to stay the year, then I'll get another job. So that's what we did. And by now, our, our, our daughter was born. And then we get to Santa Monica. That's where we lived. And by now, our children went to nursery school there. And I got very interested in that and decided to go into elementary teaching because the director of the nursery school had us come in and serve. And she said, you'd make a great elementary or nursery school teacher. You should think about this. And so I did. That's just what happened. And you've been listening to Herb and Lorraine Pergozin. And what a life. What a life led beautifully. They just uh, fall in love and they get married. I mean, he graduates one day. He's getting married the next. How often does that happen these days? These are such big events now. And then they just, they just got on with their life and moved about from job to job, working at Cape Kennedy on the Saturn rocket, but not really wanting to live in Houston, looking for something better, looking for the right place, and ultimately landing in Santa Monica, California, of all places, having been born where they were born and about to enter a new chapter in their life when we continue more of Herb and Lorraine's story, Herbie and Lorraine's story, here on Our American Stories. Our Better Health at Lower Cost series continues 
And as always, it's brought to us by the great folks at the Stetson Family Office. More of Our American Stories after these commercial messages. Our American Stories and picking up with the story of Lorraine and Herb Fergozen. And when we last left off, Lorraine had just gotten her California teaching credential, and this seemed like, well, just an ordinary and really decent and good American life. But then, well, some things changed, and as all of our lives can, they can change suddenly. Dramatic events come upon us, some planned, some not. Before we begin this next block, we warn you that some of this Next segment contains some pretty heavy material. Here's Lorraine. I had applied all over in the area, hoping to get a job there. Nobody answered me. One week after school started, I get a call from the very school district where my children are going to school, Orchid School District. They need a kindergarten teacher. My specialty, I was trained in that because Pacific Oaks, where I went to school, did early childhood education. They mainly trained teachers from kindergarten to third grade. That's just where I fell in. I had student teaching in kindergarten and first grade. I got hired. I stayed with that job for 33 years, and we lived in in, uh, Santa Maria for 48 years. We still have a house there, but we live part-time here. So... um, Anyway, our children went through the San Maria schools. My daughter met a very sad end. She, um, she had a hard time. At 16, she attempted suicide, and she just felt kind of worthless and sad and friendless, and she jumped off the third floor of a parking lot of the mall in Santa Maria onto the pavement and she in a sitting position so she cracked her pelvis into a thousand pieces and they put her back together and she survived. Dr. Joe Amata, I'll never forget him, he was the only one that knew how to rotate the pelvis and put it back in position before it healed. They did this fast before it could cement itself in the wrong position or she'd be sitting on that rough edge of the pelvis her whole life and never walk straight. And she was on her way, she was okay. And she went to uh, City College in uh, Santa Barbara. They had a school for training hotel management and restaurant management. She went through the two-year program but didn't receive the certificate. The teacher said, you need another year. You're not ready and you're immature. And that broke her heart and she wouldn't do it. She wouldn't do that extra year he said she required. All the other kids were graduating. He wouldn't let her. She just quit and went to work in restaurants. But she really did know what she was doing. 
and she advised in one restaurant that they better clean their machines. And when they didn't, they got shut down by the health department. She was right, but they weren't listening to her because she was 20 years old. So no satisfaction that she was right if they didn't listen. Anyway, she uh, had a boyfriend who wasn't the best influence, and they secretly ran away together. They, she took my husband's truck, and she told us they were going to the flea market to sell, you know, just use things that you sell at a flea market. And don't be surprised if we leave early in the morning because, and I pack up bags because I'm bringing all my junk to the flea market to sell it with Jamie. So we said, okay. Well, she never came back. She was leaving. And they made a wrong turn in the road. They should have gone to Tahoe where Jamie's parents had a condo and instead they went to Reno. And they got a job at the Sands Hotel, both of them. He became a sous chef there and she uh, was a waitress. And she worked for Tony Romas in that hotel. And the, she didn't get along with the cook. She was feisty. She knew her business, as I said, whether or not that her, her instructor taught her better than he thought he did. And um, he didn't like her demands and that she wanted things on time and she wanted the orders right and all this stuff. And he was not sane and he went after her. And when she got promoted to, she was a bus girl. She got promoted to a full-fledged waitress after only a few weeks and she was very excited and she was going out with her friends to celebrate and he wormed his way into that group and said, where are you going? And he was there. They went to Shakey's Pizza and he followed her after. She was going to go back to the Sands where Jamie was still working on a night shift. And he got her, she stepped out of her truck, got her out of that truck, dragged her off, and that was the end of her. He, he beat her, he raped her, and he knifed her 11 times. Four of those wounds were fatal. Any one of four would have killed her. And then he left her in a garbage dump. And she was missing. And Jamie wondered why she never came to get him. And there was a police report about someone being found in this garbage dump, but the person looked to be 35 years old. Well, the bugs had, you know, it was buggy and hot in the summer. And she didn't look her age, but it was her. And... Um, there was a trial, and the guy was caught right away. He's in jail for the rest of his life. There was a mistrial, or he would have been put to death, because they have the death penalty in Nevada. So we've been through some grief. She would be 53 now. I've often wondered what would have become of her had she been allowed to live. That was, I get very emotional when I talk about that. But that was the worst thing that ever happened to me in my life. And it happened a long, long time ago, but 
I really haven't been able to deal with it. I've dealt, I've tried, and I've thought I dealt with it because I let it all out, kind of. But over the years, whenever I talk about it, um, I get very emotional. My neurologist sent me to a psychologist that does testing. And he tested me um, and he determined that I had PTSD. So I didn't do anything about that. And I'm not going to a psychiatrist. Um, I'll deal with it in a, you know, the way I'm dealing with it. So um, he also said that I had kind of a halfway to, uh, to Alzheimer's. And what a story you're hearing and what a sad and tragic turn of events for this family. You will be 53 now, Lorraine said, and I often wonder what would have become of her if she'd been allowed to live. That was the worst thing that ever happened to me, confessed Herb. And though it happened a long, long time ago, I still haven't dealt with it. And now we learn, and he learns from a doctor, that not only does he have PTSD, that just doesn't happen to soldiers. It happens all the time to ordinary people who experience great trauma and then don't deal with it. He also found out that he was halfway on the road to Alzheimer's. That is a really rough day. When we come back, more of this family story, Herb and Lorraine Pergozin's story, and again, part of our Better Health at Lower Cost series, brought to us by the Stetson Family Office. More of this remarkable and this sad story, and what happens next, how they move forward, here on Our American Stories. And we continue here with our American stories and the story of Herb and Lorraine Pergrosen. While having to deal with the PTSD that came with losing his daughter, Herb and Lorraine were also about to be faced with some life-altering news. My husband, he's almost 82. When he was 78, he has epilepsy. We were on a plane. I was uh, sitting back, had my eyes closed, and I used to get these kind of dizzy spells, at least I thought that they were, occasionally. And I go to bed, go on the bed, and it would be over in a very short time. And Lorraine said, you just had a seizure, because she noticed that my mouth was contorting. It only lasted a few seconds. I didn't know it was a seizure. 
When we got home, I got a uh, neurologist. And the neurologist did all the stuff, a brain scan and all the stuff. I wasn't happy with, the, with him. The new one, when I went to, she put me on a different medication. And that one worked fine, and I was, I was free of seizures. And then I started to get a little hostile, and I was hostile to my wife. I mean, I never did anything like hurt her or anything like that, but I wasn't pleasant. So she said, that's the medicine. And she was going to put me on this other medication. And that's when this whole incident happened. And I can't blame the doctor because it was totally my fault. I was pretty stupid uh, in the way I handled the change from one medication to the other. So she changed the medication, but he, we didn't understand how to wean off of one and onto the other. And there's a very gradual change that has to happen. We just didn't understand. We didn't make sure we understood. It was our fault. We didn't make certain that we had it straight. And we didn't know how important it was either. And he had a violent reaction. And the next morning, he couldn't get out of bed. And I had to call 911 because I couldn't lift him. I couldn't drive him to the hospital myself. I called 911, they came and got him and took him by ambulance to the hospital emergency room where they stabilized him. They ca we called the neurologist, she got him in that afternoon, but the damage was done. That caused brain damage right there. And he has never quite been the same since. He was like wobbly, unable to stand up. I mean, he, it, was, it was physical, but he, um, improved rapidly. Then he began to notice uh, word lapses. He had aphasia of a kind where he couldn't uh, remember words. I noticed that I go out to the garage to do something and I forget why I went out there. So I come back in the house and I think for a while and then I remember and I go out to the garage and do what I went out there for. And I was told that, you know, old people, that's what happens, so, because I'm old. <laughs> um, so, but it didn't happen that the way it happened to me, the extent that it happened. I was very scared because I've seen, or I know about people with Alzheimer's, and I couldn't survive with that. I told my wife that if I get Alzheimer's, I don't want to live like that. Um, I talked about, you know, ending my life if I get that, uh, where I start losing everything, because you lose everything. You can't even swallow, you can't, you, you forget how to do that. Um, so when I got the diagnosis, um, I, I was petrified um, and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, so that's how, that's how I felt. I, I thought I was done for, you know, I didn't know how long I had. I was terrified, absolutely terrified. <laughs> 
and I just, I just took the bull by the horns and we went right with it, with everything. We threw everything we could at it to fight it. And whatever advice we were given, we did it, no matter how bizarre or how, how difficult a life change it was. The neurologist worked with him and it looked like dementia was threatening. All of a sudden, she, I don't know what prompted her, but she told us about Dr. Shurzai. Why don't we consider Dr. Shurzai's approach? We, and he had made an appointment with Dr. Shurzai already, but it was a three-month wait. Well, in that three months, the minute I read the book and I told him about it, we went right on that diet. And he went on that diet strictly. Once we made the decision, I threw out everything in the house that was the wrong food. I had a party for all my friends to come and raid my freezer, 12 of them. When they came over, I said, I'm cooking dinner. We're having prime rib and we're having uh, tri-tip, all these great things in my freezer. And I'm gonna cook everything I've got that I'm not supposed to eat. You come over and eat it. <laughs> and we'll eat salad or something else. But you guys come and enjoy the food and help yourself to everything in that freezer that we can't eat, that is not vegan. They did, they cleaned me out. And anything they didn't take, I took to the food bank, all the canned goods and stuff. And we've been vegan ever since. And no sugar, absolutely no sugar. We see sugar in a label, we will put it back on the shelf and it won't get sold to us. The main thing is, it has to be a plant-based diet. And that's the basic thing that a vegan diet is. If it wasn't for my wife, she keeps me on it. I can't stray. I mean, I don't want to, but sometimes there's temptation. I don't uh, give in to it. And sometimes I see something that's kind of bad, I shouldn't have it. And I'll say, oh, I can have this. It's, she'll say, no, you can't. <laughs> and then I don't. So if it wasn't for Lorraine, I'd be in big trouble. I'm really lucky. I'm really lucky. He improved. My husband showed remarkable improvement from that diet. And Dr. Shursai's book explained we did everything in the book. Uh, 20 minutes a day of uh, meditation, it's a de-stressor, it's wonderful. It's so relaxing, twice a day. Exercise, that we do rigorously. I walk five miles a day, he does great with that, and he got in such great shape. We both lost tons of weight. He looks wonderful, he's all muscle now, he's terrific, and we do Cognitive stimulation. We play bridge and we take lessons. Now I take it very seriously. We play about three days a week um, and lessons two days a week. We also do an exercise that Dr. Sherzai added. And I was kind of resistant to this because we already spend so much time on this program. But he said to pick an article in a magazine Underline 30 words in that article. He's doing an article, I'm doing an article. Separate magazines, exchange magazines. This whole exercise takes one hour. He's to memorize thir the 30 words I have underlined 
and I am to memorize the 30 words he has underlined, and we are to repeat these back to each other after an hour is up. From beginning to end of this process, from, from choosing the article to memorizing it, finishing the memorizing. Well, yesterday, he was able to do 26 words. I could only do 28. So I'm, I'm quite a good measure against him. I don't have the issues he has, but look where he is. So I started out getting six. And then you went to 13. Yeah. And then you went to 15 for a few times. And then you jumped to 21, and then you jumped to 23, and then you jumped to 25, and now you went to 26. 30 is the most you can get. Yeah. I only underlined so, 30. So that's a real step forward that I could do that. I'm, I'm not going backwards, I'm going forward. And that, I was pretty scared, I gotta tell you. And I feel a lot better now. I feel pretty good about that. And you've been listening to Herb and Lorraine Pergozin's story. And after living through what is hands down the toughest thing any married couple can live through, which is the death of a child. My goodness, he then had to get the diagnosis Herb did, which was that he was losing his mind. That is, Alzheimer's dementia had kicked in, and he was halfway there. I thought I was done for, he said. I didn't know how long I had. And it looked like dementia was, well, it was going to destroy everything. But then she was told about the Shurzai's. And by the way, we've told Dean and Aisha Shurzai's story and their book was a Blue Zone book, and it was all about diets and living styles and lifestyles that end up getting people to much better living at much lower cost and much longer living uh, at the same time. And what do you know? His life gets turned around by diet, by exercise, by meditation, and, of course, that memorization and cognitive wordplay, engaging the mind. Herb and Lorraine Pergrosen's story, our Better Health at Lower Cost series, as always, brought to us by the great folks at the Stetson Family Office, here on Our American Stories.